0: functional theology where pastor and author Chad Ashby talks about theology, scripture, and culture in a world where two and two always seems to make a five. You can find Chad's work at Christianity Today, the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God and Think Christian. You can follow Chad at his blog chadashby.com or you can follow him on Twitter at chad underscore ashby. He's down with that. Merry Christmas everybody, great to have you back, hopefully you had a chance to listen to the previous podcast all about everything you wished you could know about the wise men and the magi and I apologize I'm a little bit under the weather today. Uh, Our family actually has been pretty sick the past several weeks. We've got some kind of chest cold going around. But it doesn't, it's not going to kill our Christmas cheer. We've still been making cookies and uh, baking pies and cakes. and We even made homemade marshmallows the other night. And I promised you guys on the last podcast we'd spend some time unwrapping different topics and things I've written and preached about all dealing with the Christmas Advent season. And I know I promised you last time that we would learn everything there was to know about the Magi and the Wise Men, but I actually held something back. And this article is an article I wrote for the IMB, International Mission Board last year at Christmas time. And I will post all of these articles in the, uh, in the podcast notes. So if you'd like to read further, this is just going to give you kind of a taste of all the different things that you can read more about. But uh, I wrote an article for the IMB about seeing ourselves in the story of the Magi. And in this article, I kind of explore particularly the star in Matthew's gospel. And why is it that Matthew gives us so little detail about the Magi? And this idea that the star, it kind of symbolizes the, the grace of God that draws these men from among the nations to Jesus. And even though the city of Jerusalem was supposed to be the city on a hill and supposed to be a light to the nations, they seem very unwilling to help the Magi find Jesus. But really, when it comes down to it, all they need is the star. The star takes them all the way home. And so just thinking about, you know, what does it mean maybe that Matthew wants us to see ourselves in these sort of nameless, featureless magi who come wandering into the Christmas story out of nowhere? Maybe we're supposed to see ourselves as those magi. We're, we're the ones from the nations who, Paul says, are strangers to the covenant of promise and without God's intervening grace, we have no hope and we're without God in the world. And so, what does it mean for us, then, to become the light to the nations that Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem, failed to be? That this idea of the star, that we are the light of the world now, this is why we go on mission, this is why we send people on mission, why we give to missions. And how uh, Matthew is introducing us to this uh, gospel Great Commission idea even at the beginning of his gospel. So, go check that out at the IMB. Um, A little bit more for you to think about uh, as far as the wise men. And I've already mentioned, if you listened to the last podcast, I wrote a piece a couple years back for Christianity Today um, called Wise Men, Kings, or Magi. What should we call them? It's complicated. And I'd encourage you, if you didn't listen to the previous podcast, go back and listen, or you can go check that out at Christianity Today. I also talked about how many wise men were there, and why it's actually okay for us to talk about there being three wise men, even though technically Matthew didn't say how many there were, how uh, the story there in Matthew 2 actually is very evocative of a story in Genesis chapter 18, Um, a story about the coming judgment of God, which... Is against Sodom and Gomorrah, and I think Matthew's gospel shows us that that judgment is impending against the city of Jerusalem. Well, let's see. Let's let's unwrap something else here. What else do we have? All right. Yeah. Here, let's let's talk about the Grinch for a little while. So we've unwrapped another one. I wrote a piece back in 2014 just thinking about this idea of how do we decide how much is too much as far as Christmas gifts go for our kids. And I feel like a lot of us, you know, are very concerned about the materialism that has crept year, in, year by year into the Christmas season. And um, we recognize it's not okay to just buy a ton of presents because, you know, well, all the other kids' friends at school, their parents are buying them tons of gifts. And this idea of trying to keep up with the Joneses' kids is not really a good motive for our gift-giving. And I've seen, you know, different people use different methods. Some people, um, I've seen, use the three gifts of the Magi. So they give their kids gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is something valuable, frankincense being something spiritual, and myrrh being something for the body. Um, I've seen other bloggers recommend... Giving gifts according to want, need, wear, read. Have you heard that one? Our family actually does a Mary gift, a shepherd gift, a wise man gift, and a Jesus gift. And there's not really anything super spiritual about it. But the the Mary gift is based off of uh, in Luke 2. It says Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. So the Mary gift is like a treasure gift. It's like the one the kids want the most. Um, the Jesus gift, we wrap in a swaddling blanket. It, it doesn't really, the, the present could be anything, but we, we put it under the tree, wrapped in a swaddling blanket, which honestly is nice because it's one less present we have to wrap. Um, <laughs> um, the shepherd gift, the kids have to sing a Christmas carol in order to get, because you know the shepherds, after they saw Jesus, they left, um, worshiping, praising, singing to the city on their way back to the fields. And then uh, the wise man gift the kids have to search the house for. They have to uh, go on a on a journey for, and usually it's a gift that is for all all uh, well, now five of them together. I've got five kids, so um, pray for me as far as gift giving goes. I don't, I don't know how we, yeah. Anyways, so there's a lot of different systems um, for choosing how to give gifts to your kids. And I think that's good, but I think one of the problems now I'm starting to see is that with any countercultural trend, there's always a danger of overcorrecting the ship. So you know, you're steering away from Triptists, but we have this this danger of then being swallowed by uh, Scylla. <coughs> this is typical Christians. You know, we violently react against materialism. And then we swing all the way over towards being cheap and frugal. And so the mindset then becomes, well, how can I spend the least this Christmas? Or what's the least I can get away with giving to my kids this Christmas? And we swing away from overspending to wanting to spend as little as possible. And I think some of us are just getting a little grinchy, if, uh, if we're honest. And I, I I think that Christmas is a great opportunity for us to be gracious to our children, which is exactly what God has done for us at Christmas. He has poured out his favor on us in a way we haven't deserved We we and lavishly. And so, obviously, we don't want to excuse materialism and just spending beyond our means. But I think there's a place to be uh, said for giving our kids gifts in a gracious way not wanting to just get away with giving as little as possible. So uh, go go check that out. Um, Are you grinchy or gracious this Christmas? All right, well, well, let's unwrap another one. Let's see what's in this one. Oh, all right. So this is a Christmas series of sermons that I put together last year. One of my most ambitious and rewarding series was for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation last year, and the series was called A Very Reformed Christmas. All right, let me unpack that for you for a second. So, I know, it's ironic. The Reformers probably would be against celebrating Christmas um, because it was, like, too popish or something. I don't know. But uh, let's push past that. So, what I did was, for for the five weeks of Advent and then the week of New Year's Eve, I... uh, preached on one of the five solas, Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, um, Solus Christus, Soli Deo Gloria. And then I paired it with a reformer who I gave some historical background and biographical information about their life and how they sort of expressed that sola in their own life. And then, believe it or not, I tried to do all of this in one sermon. I also... All of this was expressed in a particular story or song from the Christmas story. So, for instance, Sola Scriptura was um, from John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word. And then talking about William Tyndale, who was a famous famous Bible translator. um, Translated much of the English Bibles that, uh, actually much of William Tyndale's translation was then incorporated about 100 years after his life into the King James Version uh, the second week Sola Gratia focuses on Ulrich Zwingli and Grace Alone from Matthew 2, 1-12 through 12. so Sola Fide, Martin Luther Solus Christus is John Huss that one was the week before Christmas so focused on Luke 2, 1-21 through 21. and then for New Year's was really I think a great capstone on the whole series Hebrews 1, 1-4, Soli Deo Gloria, John Calvin, To God alone be the glory. So go check that out. I've put all those together on one page on our church's website so you can listen to those throughout the Christmas season and even into the new year to encourage you and really to learn a lot about the Reformers. Um, so that's a very Reformed Christmas. Let's see, what else do we have? Let's see, what else do we have here? Yeah. Oh, oh, here's a great one. So, I wrote a piece last year about um, Sufjan Stevens. I promised in the title of this podcast we'd be talking about unicorns, and here I'm delivering. Have you heard Sufjan Stevens' song, Christmas Unicorn? It comes off of his uh, Christmas compilation, his second compilation, called Silver and Gold, came out in 2012. People, you know, were maybe not so hot on it as much as they were his first compilation of Christmas albums um, because it's just a little bit more, I don't know, rough around the edges, a little bit more uh, cynical, but I really liked it and it ends with this beautiful song, Christmas Unicorn. It's a 12 minute long song and it's all about this idea of the this unattainable desire we have to capture the perfect essence of Christmas spirit. And it's a great song. you got to go listen to it. But I wrote this piece for Christ in Pop Culture. It's one of my favorite pieces from last year. It goes through and line, line by line, verse by verse, kind of unpacks this this unicorn that introduces itself to us that has all of these strange characteristics Um I'm a Christian holiday. I'm a symbol of original sin. I'm a pagan. I have a pagan tree and a magical wreath and a bow tie on my chin. Oh, I'm a pagan heresy. I'm a tragical Catholic, sh- Catholic shrine. <coughs> I'm a mystical apostasy. I'm a horse with a fantasy twist. All these strange things. Uh, later on, it says, Oh, I'm hysterically American. I have a credit card on my wrist. I have no home or a field to roam, I will curse you with my kiss. I'm a frantic shopper and a brave pill popper, and they say my kind are rare. So this is a strange animal that becomes more garish and monsterly as it describes all of these things that are hung, these ornaments and tinsel, and essentially what uh, Sufyan is trying to show us is this picture of this just amalgamation of all these strange and weird and bizarre traditions and things that people say Christmas is supposed to be. Um, and I think the whole point of the song is to show us that, that we shouldn't be fighting over what is, what's the real Christmas, you know. Um, my Christmas is the right Christmas. To say, to, for us to realize, he's kind of holding a mirror up to our faces and saying, listen, look how weird you are. You put socks on your mantles and tell your kids that a fat man is somehow going to slide down the chimney and fill them with goodies. You drive over all of God, You drive all over God's green earth, eating family dinners and Aunt Susie's and Grand Bob's and Sister Margaret's all on the same day. You lay a baby statue in your front yard on a bale of hay next to an ass, okay? And what he's doing is holding up a mirror in front of us and saying, look, look at yourself. And for us to realize, oh my gosh. I'm the Christmas unicorn, and to be able to just laugh and celebrate this season and realize there's not any perfect way to celebrate Christmas, and uh, this inescapable uh, Christmas unicorn is has been there all along. We just need to be able to treasure the traditions that we have, and to realize that, really, um, Christmas is meant to be this escape from reality, where we get to... Celebrate for a little while what it's going to be like to have God with us, just the mirth and the celebration uh what will it be like and to realize that really Jesus is the ultimate christmas unicorn he's the Messiah that we never expected. you know we expect this king to come riding in and to and to swoop in and kill all of our enemies and and instead we find this this shivering baby lying in an animal trough next to uh strangers and decked in in bedecked in, in in jewelry and bling blinged out with frankincense and myrrh i mean it's the most improbable christmas and coming of christ that we can ever expect and uh, so that's what this that's what the song is about i would encourage you to go go find it and uh, you could search that article that's on christ in pop culture let's see we've got a couple more let's do another sufian uh, special i am um, posted chords for his song Joy to the World from Songs for Christmas, which actually comes with its own songbook. But a lot of people have been, including myself, a little bit befuddled by the chord progression for Joy to the World in there. And the reason why is he... uh, I'm not sure whether he's trying to be obtuse or not. But I don't know how to play an E flat minor 7 or an A flat 7 on my guitar. And uh, I realized... If you just capo your guitar, capo fourth, and then uh, transcribe all the chords, it's actually a song in the key of A, which is really easy to play. Um, so the PDF is up on on my blog. Go get it. It's a fun song to play, a really beautiful song to sing in, in as well. So um, that's a resource that you can pick up. Let's see, what else do we have going on here? Well, a couple years ago I did an exegesis on the fly, a little video on Vimeo of... Mary's Magnificat. And so if you're interested in that, um I do some breakdown of the poetry of Luke 1, 46 through 55. One thing that's really kind of interesting is the way that Mary steps in and expresses and allows herself to become an expression and a symbol for the entire people of God, the faithful servant Israel. And how um, the faithful remnant has been waiting for the Messiah and for the Lord to come and visit and to vindicate his people and how she sings not only for herself, but she sings a song that's for all God's people to sing with her in faith. And so I would encourage you to go go look at that. That's a really really fun little exercise and that might be encouraging to you. This year I've been preaching from Luke chapter 1 as well. And the another Christmas carol in Luke 1 is the carol of Zechariah that he sings, actually not at Christmas, but at the birth of his son John the Baptist, who was born six months before Jesus. And um, I wrote a little bit about the unexpected joy. <coughs> I, I, you guys are just going to have to excuse the cough. Um, the unexpected joy that we find... In uh, the fact that God has visited us at Christmas just as he said he would. And that is one of the hinge points in Zechariah's song. Did you know that the word advent in Latin actually, uh, it comes from the Latin root that means he visited or visitation. And so very much Zechariah's carol, which begins, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited his people. that It's an Advent carol through and through. And this unexpected joy that he has visited us at Christmas just as he said he would, that even though God told us beforehand everything that was going to happen, that we're still surprised that God keeps all of his promises and how that actually fills us with great joy. Um, so check that out, the unexpected joy of Christmas. <laughs> And uh, why don't we, let's see, I think this is the last one I've got for you guys. I love, uh, I love to hate all of the sort of pop intellectual articles that get passed around every Christmas where it makes us all feel really stupid for celebrating uh, or the traditions we treasure. So for instance, uh, one that's, it seems to come up every year. That people love to poke and prod and make fun of us for is this idea that um, traditional idea that that Jesus was born in a stable, um, that there was no room for them in the inn. And there's been a lot of articles that get passed around every year. There was one at the Gospel Coalition, and I, I write for them, so I'm not I'm not knocking the, these organizations. I just it's just kind of fun poking fun at them. Um, say that no, actually. Um, this word "in," which the Greek word for it is "kataluma," it only actually appears in two other places in the New Testament, and in both of those places, they refer to the upper room in the last uh, of the Last Supper. Do you guys know the stories I'm talking about? Um, additionally, they argue uh, that the that Luke uses a different word for "in" in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Which must mean that in Luke 2, 7, when he says there was no room for them in the cataluma, it actually doesn't mean the inn, but it means like a guest room or an upper room or a lower room, basically a bonus room in in a family house. So instead of picturing Mary and Joseph, you know, wandering the streets and knocking on the inn door and it it says no vacancy and they're so sad and they're shivering in a stable. No, 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 no. We've all got it wrong. Actually, they were in a family member's home, and uh, they were just... um, There wasn't room for them in the the guest room, and so they were down, like, with the... I'm not really sure what they're picturing. Anyways, I've written a piece that just kind of further explores... What does this word Cataluma mean? Because, actually, it's used a bunch of times in the Old Testament, uh, Greek Old Testament, called the Septuagint, which um, can be really... Illuminating sometimes, when it comes to trying to understand the meaning of a word in the old in the New Testament that's only used a couple of times, and so what I do in this article is I catalog all the times that it's used and show that actually it's quite reasonable for us to th- think that maybe it wasn't in or at least a lodging place, and uh, that we don't have to throw our in. Out of the uh, out of our traditional Christmas story, and so check that out. It might be interesting to you if it's something that you've maybe heard about. I actually think that that Luke uses a word uses the word Cataluma specifically to not draw attention to to where it was they were turned away from, but actually that that he wants to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus was laying in a manger, which is a very specific word that he uses three times in Luke chapter 2. And he's emphasizing manger in that story. Uh, But, you know, we'll talk about that maybe some other time. And thank you guys for joining me once more on Functional Theology. I hope you have a very Merry Christmas. Eat way too many cookies. Have some hot cocoa. And uh, I'll see you in the new year. The Lord has come. Let earth receive. Let it